In this special edition of the UCI podcast, infectious disease experts Drs. Ming Tan and Sahir Khan of the UCI School of Medicine examine the past, present, and future of global pandemics. Learn about the commonalities between the current COVID-19 pandemic and other virus outbreaks in history, like the great influenza of 1918. Understand the impact of the deadly virus on communities worldwide. Also, learn how the virus is spread, what to look for, and who is at risk. Find out the best way to stay safe and what to consider as new diagnostic and antibody tests, vaccines, and treatments are developed. Here is their presentation. Welcome. Um, I'm Ming Tan, and today I'm going to be talking to you together with Dr. Sahir Khan. We are both infectious disease doctors and infectious disease physician scientists at UC Irvine Medical Center. And uh, we're going to talk today about COVID-19. This is a talk that we aim for the general public. So I'm going to start out with the first half an hour. And then uh, Dr. Khan is going to be talking uh, in the second half an hour about testing and treatment and a vaccine. And so to give us some perspective, I'd like to talk about the 1918 influenza pandemic. Um, a third of the world's population was infected and there were 50 million deaths. So that shows the scale of that pandemic. And in the United States, we had uh, two thirds of a million cases uh, of deaths and a 2.5% case fatality rate. Now, uh, an important feature of that pandemic is that it came in several waves. There was the first wave in the spring of 1918, but the second wave in the fall. Now, we don't know what's going to happen with this current pandemic, but just to be aware that not all the cases can occur all at once. And even if the current outbreak ends, we are at risk for additional waves. Now, the question, of course, is there's so many infectious uh, agents, but why do some of them cause pandemics? And there are three properties we, we look for in a pandemic strain. One is it must be able to infect humans, but then importantly, uh, the spread from one human to another human must occur efficiently. And the third very important point is that the human population must be vulnerable. So what that means is there's no pre-existing immunity in the population. And so this should be a, a new viral strain. And so SARS-CoV-2 has all these properties and that's why in a short time it's been able to spread and then infect all around the world. Here's a timeline of the pandemic. So we all know that at the end of 2019, we heard about pneumonia cases in Wuhan, China. And within two weeks, the cause of this outbreak was identified as a new coronavirus called SARS-CoV-2. Dr. Khan is going to tell us about coronaviruses. Um, but this is a short time because for the original SARS outbreak in 2003, this is the uh, severe acute respiratory uh, syndrome, which was an outbreak we had from a different coronavirus in 2003. It took many, weeks, uh, many months to identify the, the virus as the cause. But in this case, it was identified in two weeks. And then there was rapid spread outside China to Thailand first. And we now know that some cases were imported into the U.S. from uh, uh, travelers returning from China to uh, the U.S. But uh, in February 6, we now know that's the first known U.S. death. And so this was a case that at the time was not attributed to COVID-19, but uh, we've done some testing since then. And we now know that this person who died in Santa Clara County in Northern California uh, had COVID-19 as the cause. So this is February 6, and this person had no known contact with a COVID-19 patient, no travel outside the U.S., so this is evidence that there was community spread already. 
Um, if you recall, the outbreak quickly spread to the rest of the world. We first heard of outbreaks in Italy, Iran, and South Korea. And by March, Europe was the epicenter. Here in California, March 19th, we had a shelter-in-place order. We were the first state to have the shelter-in-place order, and this has already been two months. So it has been very effective in, in so-called flattening the curve in California. If you consider that California and New York were at uh, the same stage uh, in March, and they've had many more cases there. So our shelter-in-place uh, um, uh, order has had a, an effect in flattening the curve, but as you know, uh, we haven't eliminated the cases. It's also been two months, and it's time to wear on people. Um, March 26, uh, by then we had more cases in the US than any other country, so we have remained the epicenter of the pandemic since then. And April, 20, April 2nd was a, a dubious uh, milestone, a million cases worldwide, but we're now approaching 5 million cases. Johns Hopkins has a very uh, useful map uh, on their website, which keeps track of the number of cases worldwide and in individual countries and also the deaths. So we're at 4.5 million cases now, and the number of deaths is just gone over 300,000. And unfortunately, every day when you check back, the numbers have gone up. Uh, this is an interesting graph that shows the number of deaths uh, as uh, they are apportioned around the world. And you can see here on the very top uh, in, in maroon, uh, the number of deaths in the US is large compared to the rest of the world. Um, we, are, we make up as many deaths as, as Europe altogether. Um, the number of deaths in the US has pretty much stayed about the same. It's not decreasing like it is in some countries, but we wanna pay attention to other places in the world Brazil is starting to have a lot of cases, and Russia as well. Uh, um, Russia seems to have a few reported deaths compared to the number of cases, but both Brazil and Russia are reporting about 10,000 cases a day, and the number of deaths is increasing. So the epicenter is now moving to some new countries. In the uh, US, we have uh, more than 1.4 million cases. You can see our graph here. And so the graph has flattened out and is coming down but not, not fast enough. So we're really almost like at a stable level where we still have a lot of cases, about 20,000 new cases a day. And our number of deaths is 86,000 known deaths, but as I'll point out, we think the actual number of deaths due to COVID-19 is more than that. And the map below, this is from the New York Times, shows uh, places in the country with more, more cases, and you can see a um, big outbreak here in uh, New York City, but the entire Northeast. Also big cities like Chicago and uh, New Orleans. Uh, on the West Coast, we've had relatively few cases. We have some cases in LA, but the West Coast has uh, been uh, primarily spared compared to the East Coast. And some of this is, is probably largely due to the shelter in place and uh, social distancing measures that have been widespread in our communities. If we think of the cases in the US, uh, there are cases everywhere, but there have been clusters of cases which are important for knowing where the risk of transmission is great. And so this has involved long-term care facilities and nursing homes. As I'll point out, older people are at greater risk for infection in severe cases. Uh, homeless shelters, uh, meat processing facilities, other workplaces where people are in close contact with others, prisons, and cruise ships. So what these places all have in common um, is that these are places where people are in confined quarters, whether uh, by choice or not, and uh, it's easy for transmission to occur. Now there's also transmission in family gatherings, uh, especially uh, um, when uh, 
family get together, in, including in, in, in funerals. And so it doesn't mean that you're safe among people you know. Uh, closer to home in Orange County, we have almost 4,000 cases, uh, known cases. Uh, 80 deaths is actually a, a relatively low number, even though 80 deaths is a lot of deaths. But compared to other counties nearby, our death rate is a little bit low in Orange County. The reason is not completely known. We have about just over 100 new cases a day. For perspective, California has 75,000 cases. Orange County has about 10% of the population of uh, California. So you can see that we have uh, lower rates in Orange County. California has over 3,000 deaths and about 1,800 new cases a day. Now, one of the, the issues with tracking the number of cases is that it somewhat depends on testing. And we know that testing rates are not the same everywhere. And so if you test more, you may uh, identify more cases. And so what I look for are the number of hospitalizations and the number of patients in the intensive care unit. And uh, this is a measure of the patients with more severe infection and unlikely to be influenced that much by testing rates. And so for Orange County, you can see in orange, the number of hospitalizations is going up slightly, but not tremendously. And this is data from the Orange County uh, Healthcare Agency, which is our public health department. They have a very good website and they give a, a daily track of, of number of cases, even down to individual cities within Orange County. Here I have um, something showing the timeline of infection. In other words, what happens when an individual is exposed and then you come down with the infection. And so we have exposure. And then I've marked it as four to five days later, they have onset of symptoms. So this is what we call the incubation period, the time between someone being exposed and, and having uh, symptoms to show that they're infected. And this is on average four to five days, but um, it's reported to be up to 14 days. That's why you've heard when they talk about quarantining someone for 14 days to see if they develop infection after exposure. That's where the 14 days come from. The 14 days may be on the long side. It's estimated that about 98% of individuals exposed come down with uh, symptoms within 11 days. And as I said, on average, it's four to five days. Now, the symptoms when they occur uh, most commonly include fever and dry cough. That's a cough where the person is not bringing up any sputum and also fatigue. Now, there are some other symptoms, uh, loss of appetite. Some uh, individuals who are infected actually have sputum production. Some have muscle aches. But in a mild infection, which accounts for 80% of the, of the symptomatic cases, the patient uh, doesn't progress beyond this and recovers after about two weeks. Now, one of the uh, things that we're concerned about is when during this time course is this infected individual infectious? When can they pass it on to someone else? A lot of infections, the patient's only infectious or contagious while they're having symptoms. But as you have probably heard, with COVID-19, there seem to be cases of people who are transmitting infection before they even know they have it. And so I've marked down here the infectious period, and there's now good data indicating that an infected individual will be producing virus and shedding the virus before they have onset of symptoms. So the peak is one day before they have symptoms. They can spread, uh, can extend to three days or even some reports a few days longer than that. But we, we could say between one to three days before they have symptoms, a person could be infectious. Now, of course, this is problematic because the person doesn't know they are sick, they don't have symptoms, they say they feel well, they go out and they, they socialize with their friends or they go to work, uh, but the thing is they can spread it to, to other people. So this has been called asymptomatic spread. I think it's safer to say it's pre-symptomatic because these are individuals who will go on to have symptoms. It's just that a few days prior to having symptoms, 
they are really shedding virus in their respiratory secretions and they're infectious. And then if you look at how long does someone stay infectious, it appears to be about a week, although you will see reports of people where viral material can be detected for longer than that, but in most cases, that is the viral genetic material. It doesn't indicate that the virus, uh, that viable virus is shed. So it looks like the, the main infectious period is for the first seven days of symptoms. So this would be a mild infection. Now for about 15 to 20% of patients uh, who are symptomatic, they have a more severe infection. The initial infection is the same. They have these fever, dry cough, and fatigue as common symptoms. But at the end of the first week, these patients take a turn for the worse. Um, they have a shortness of breath. Uh, it necess necessitates being seen by doctors and being admitted to hospital. And then within a couple of days, uh, they have uh, ARDS, which is acute respiratory distress syndrome, which is basically in indicative of an inflammatory response, inflammation in their lungs that affects their ability to uh, uh, oxygenate, to acquire oxygen uh, for their blood. And these patients get admitted to the ICU, the intensive care unit, and they uh, often need mechanical ventilation on a ventilator, and some of these patients will die on an average 18 days after their symptom onset. And so far, we don't have a good way of knowing when patients come down with symptoms and are sick, we, it's hard to know which ones will go on to develop uh, the more severe infection. It seems as if this, this severe infection, as Dr. Khan would talk about, is because of the body trying to fight off the infection, the mounting a very robust inflammatory response that also has deleterious effects on, on the body. Uh, a word about the shortness of breath. This is slightly unusual with COVID-19. Um, other symptoms that a COVID-19 patient has, with the fever, uh, cough, fatigue, we can see this with a lot of respiratory infections. It doesn't stand out as being unusual. And in this time of the year, people come down with other colds. So just because you have cold symptoms doesn't mean you have COVID-19. But with COVID-19, it's been noted that the shortness of breath doesn't occur right away when the patient first has fever and cough. But if it comes on, it comes on towards the end of the first week. It often is worse with exertion. And by the time the patient with COVID-19 has shortness of breath, their oxygen levels are quite low. And we think this is because of a defect in uh, oxygenating, acquiring oxygen in the lungs. It's because the air sacs, which are the alveoli, are filled in with fluid, and there's inflammation with white cells trying to fight off the infection uh, uh, being called in uh, and surrounding the alveoli. So it's really the inflammatory response that causes the, in, uh, the changes that lead to shortness of breath. Uh, COVID-19 patients have been reported to have additional signs and symptoms. They can have gastrointestinal complaints such as nausea and diarrhea. Um, quite interestingly, uh, disorders of the sense of smell and taste have been described. This is uh, somewhat unusual. We don't always see this with respiratory infections. Um, patients also have cardiovascular complications and neurological complications. There have been reports of uh, blood clotting problems where patients can have um, pulmonary embolism, which is a blood clot in the lungs. And then something called cytokine storm, which is a persistent fever and intense inflammatory response. And this is associated with a, a worse outcome. So when I'm talking about 80% of the patients with a mild infection and 15 to 20% of a severe infection, these are the symptomatic uh, cases. What we don't know is there are a lot of reports now about people who never have symptoms, but we don't know how many of them there are. So are we talking about a, a pyramid like this with a base of asymptomatic cases that's relatively small, or do we have a lot of asymptomatic cases? And because they don't have symptoms, it's, it's 
Hard to know that these patients have COVID-19 without additional testing. Dr. Khan will talk about how we can identify these individuals. But this matters because with the case on the right, with a large number of asymptomatic cases, it would indicate that there are many more cases in the community that we don't know, don't yet know about, but it also could indicate there's much more immunity in, uh, potential for immunity in the population. So this is a, an area of intense interest and a lot of investigation to see how many asymptomatic cases there are there relative to the symptomatic cases. We know that uh, although everyone is at risk for infection, there's some risk factors for severe infection. And from the beginning, it's been clear that age matters. And so on the right is a chart showing the hospitalization rate. And you can see by decade, the rate of hospitalization goes up. And so by the time uh, individuals are over 65, their rate of hospitalization is on the high side and keeps increasing. And 80% of the deaths were in individuals over 65. And this has been consistent throughout the world. We also know that there's some underlying medical conditions that predispose for severe infection. So patients with cardiovascular disease, diabetes, and hypertension, these also tend to be conditions more, uh, that are more common in the older population. One of the things we talk about is the case fatality rate, that is how many deaths there are uh, proportional to the number of known cases. So if we go back to our pyramid, it would be the deaths over the known cases, which include both the severe and mild cases. The problem, of course, is um, we don't know about the asymptomatic cases, as we pointed out, and the number of known cases may be affected by how much testing there is in the community. But worldwide, uh, the most recent data is that the case fatality rate is close to 7%, and the US is about 6%. We know that the rate was particularly high in Italy, about 14%. There's a lot of speculation it could be due to multi-generational families where older individuals got, uh, got infected by younger individuals in the same household. Um, uh, in China, the reported case fatality rate is 5.5%. Some countries like South Korea had a very low case fatality rate. Again, if you have more identification of asymptomatic cases, that would tend to lower the case fatality rate. So comparing from one country to another is an indirect, uh, it's an inexact uh, science. Uh, children seem to be a special case for COVID-19. Um, children under 18, account for only 1.7% of cases in the US, even though they make up a larger proportion of the population. And most cases are not severe. They're less likely to have symptoms, uh, such as fever, cough, shortness of breath. They have a lower hospitalization rate and a very low death rate. And so this has led people to propose that uh, reopening the schools may be a safe thing to do. Um, the school closures was mainly driven by our experience of influenza where young children are the main vehicle for transmission of influenza in the population and so it was thought that if we close the schools that would prevent the spread of COVID-19. Again there's some indication that children are much at, uh, less at risk for uh, severe infection but there is a caveat I'll talk about at the end of the slide. Now we know that most of the children who are in infected were in, uh, uh, acquired infection either in their household in close contact with infected patients. So more evidence that children weren't acquiring it from each other. Now the, the one concern though is there have been very recent reports of severe and sometimes fatal infection in children, not in a large number of children, but we have been hearing about something called the pediatric multi-system inflammatory syndrome. It's a severe inflammation, uh, vasculitis, which is inflammation of the blood vessels. It's similar to something called Kawasaki disease we've known about for many years, but we don't know the cause. It's been suspected to be infectious. But now there's association 
with COVID-19. And so it leaves us in a difficult situation where we know that most children do well, uh, but a small proportion of children can have a very uh, severe and fatal outcome. Um, there's now also indication that the number of COVID-19 infections, uh, particularly here in the, in the US, but also anywhere else, may be much higher than is known from the symptomatic cases. So the way this is estimated is to do an antibody test. Dr. Khan will be talking about tests uh, after this, but it's a test, a blood test, to, to look for antibodies to COVID-19 as a way of finding out if a person has been exposed to COVID-19. So this has been done in various regional studies. Here in Southern California, there was a study in LA County, which estimated that 2.8 to 5.6% of, of people in LA County have actually had COVID-19 infection. This is 28 to 55 times the known number of cases. And then in Northern California, they did a study in Santa Clara County, and similarly they found that the uh, prevalence, uh, the number of cases was estimated to be 25 to 4.2%, and that's 50 to 85 times the known cases. So indicating that there may be many, many more cases that uh, were asymptomatic, where people didn't know they were infected, but they've been exposed and infected. And the rate in New York City of a similar study was very high at 21%, but that's no surprise given the number of known cases that we know. Another way of telling whether there's more COVID-19 in the community is to look at death rates. And so here's a graph from the CDC showing the uh, weekly number of deaths, which hovers at about 60,000. It goes up in the winter time. And you can see this big peak here um, in, in March and April and now going into May. So many more deaths than we're used to. We call these excess deaths. There were more than 15,000 excess deaths in March uh, through the beginning of April in the US. Half of these we can attribute to COVID-19. The others are not officially uh, blamed on COVID-19, but it's uh, reasonable to assume that they were related to this COVID-19 outbreak. So indicating that many deaths um, are not uh, officially recorded as due to COVID-19, but are probably uh, due to COVID-19. So indicating that the COVID-19 death rate may be much higher than what is reported. <clears throat> we're gonna talk a bit about transmission since this is important. So the the virus that causes COVID-19 originally was an animal virus. We think it may have come from bats, but at some point it, it got transmitted to humans and from then on it's been transmitted from human to human. So it doesn't involve an animal at this point. And it's a respiratory infection, so the spread is a direct spread by respiratory droplets. These are droplets produced by an infected individual when they cough or sneeze, even if they talk or just exhale, they produce these respiratory droplets. And we know that these respiratory droplets uh, in largest amount within six feet of the individual. And that's where you see all the reports about staying six feet away from people for social distancing purposes. Now, the spread is when these droplets contact the mouth, nose, or eyes of another person. But it could also be done through hands. And the way that would happen would be the infected individual gets their respiratory droplets on their hands. Then maybe they shake hands with another person and that person then touches their hands to their face. So this would be a direct spread from one person to another. Now, um, you've also heard that we're concerned about whether uh, objects, inanimate objects can also be involved in the transmission. So this would be surfaces or objects that are contaminated by a patient's respiratory droplets, and then someone else touches those objects and then touches their face. Now you can imagine that that's a less likely scenario than a direct respiratory droplet. Um, the, the spread here is more likely if there's heavy viral contamination. So if there, there are a lot of viral droplets on the surface. 
And this has been studied, and this is more likely in the household of an infected individual, which is why transmission is mainly within a household. And another place would be if a patient's in a hospital, then the hospital room has a lot of virus contamination, and hospitals are actively trying to, uh, to disinfect and decontaminate uh, hospital rooms to prevent spread to uh, healthcare workers. Um, we've already touched a little bit on this, which is can COVID-19 be transmitted by asymptomatic individuals, individuals who at the time don't have symptoms, but infectious and can spread it to someone else. So to put it in perspective, most cases are transmitted by symptomatic individuals. So the person who's coughing and sneezing really should stay home, not go to work, not expose other individuals. But there are two scenarios for asymptomatic spread. So we've talked about the pre-symptomatic spread, these would be individuals who are going to have symptoms, but again, for one to three days before they have symptoms, they can be producing virus, shedding virus, and, those, and that virus can be spread to someone else. So this is a form of asymptomatic spread during the pre-symptomatic period of an individual. And in a study in Singapore, uh, about 6.4% of cases uh, could be attributed to pre-symptomatic spread, so a small proportion of cases. There's another scenario for asymptomatic spread, which is from an individual who never had symptoms, so never knew they got infected, but can they nevertheless transmit the virus to another individual? And this we don't know. We don't know, does it happen? And we don't know how often this happens. And um, so this is what people are concerned about. Um, but again, we don't know, uh, we don't have good data about how often they spread from someone who uh, themselves never develops symptoms. I want to talk about a couple of uh, um, situations we're aware of. There was a famous case with a cruise ship, in fact, several cruise ships, but this was the Diamond Princess. It was a large cruise ship with uh, almost 4,000 passengers and crew, and about uh, almost 20% of the passengers and crew were infected. Now, we know that most of the transmission occurred before they had a lockdown on the ship, so there was free mingling of individuals. And then after they locked down the passengers, there was no more transmission except within the cabin, emphasizing that transmission can occur in the same household. However, they didn't quarantine the crew, and so transmission still occurred among the crew. Um, there was no evidence that COVID-19 was spread by the ship's air conditioning system, so it seems to be, again, direct contact was what led to uh, uh, transmission from one individual to another. And then here's an interesting case of a restaurant in China where they were able to do contact tracing, meaning they were able to trace every individual who made contact with the index case, a person who was infected, to look at the mode of transmission. So uh, this was early on, January 24th. Uh, this was a family who traveled from Wuhan to another city in China. And these are the tables in the restaurant. And at table A, the case called A1, was someone who at the time didn't have symptoms but she developed symptoms later that day. She started having fever and cough later that day. But you can see the other red circles are family members of hers at the same table. The ones in red are the ones who also got infected. So not everybody who sat with her got sick, but a good number of her family members at the same table, even across the table, were infected. Now, the interesting thing is that uh, customers at neighboring tables also acquired infection. So uh, table B and table C, you can see there were individuals who got infected. Now here's the air conditioner moving in this direction. And so you can imagine that it was blowing respiratory secretions from table A to table B. We don't know how 
patients or customers on table C got infected, the speculation that the air conditioning uh, currents uh, went across the restaurant, bounced off the wall, and went back in this direction. But the interesting thing is there were no infections in neighboring tables on this side where the uh, airflow from the air conditioner would not have gone in this direction. This suggests that it's really the, uh, the air conditioner blowing the air as opposed to aerosol or uh, airborne transmission where droplets of the virus can settle uh, and, and, and linger in the air for many hours and that would affect um, people throughout the restaurant. So it was really directed by the air conditioner. So it's again mostly by respiratory droplets. Also, uh, no staff um, uh, were infected. So it brings up the question, can we have COVID-19 transmission by airborne particles? And what these are are small particles that can stay in the air for many hours. The respiratory droplets produced by COVID-19 patients are larger droplets, and these droplets fall to the ground within minutes. And so there it would be when someone coughs or sneeze, uh, does it land directly on another person, or after that, the particles don't stay in the air. But the airborne particles are smaller, and they can stay in the air for many hours. And there are a number of infectious diseases like measles and tuberculosis that can be spread this way. And these diseases are much more infectious. They're more secondary cases. Uh, and, um, and the concern is, is this the case of COVID-19? But I want to reassure you that so far in the community, there's no reports of transmission by airborne particles. The risk appears to be low. Now, this is not necessarily the case in the hospital, where in treating the patient, we do certain things, such as when we intubate a patient, that are called aerosol-generating procedures. The procedure itself can produce the airborne particles. So healthcare workers are at risk for this, and that's why they want to wear special personal protective equipment, or PPE, called an N95 mask to protect them. In the community, it's not necessary to wear an N95 mask because the airborne particles are not produced by a COVID-19 patient in the course of the natural infection. So then to, to summarize uh, what I've talked to you about, uh, COVID-19 has been a pandemic, it's swept the world, it's caused by a novel coronavirus, which is a kind of RNA virus. It causes a respiratory infection, a fulminant or severe viral pneumonia, but many cases are mild or asymptomatic. And the spread is person-to-person, uh, -person, mainly by respiratory droplets. We have no pre-existing immunity in the human population, which is why everyone's at risk and why so many cases, uh, there have been so many cases of infection. And Dr. Khan will be talking about treatment options and a vaccine, but so far we have limited options. And because of all this, it's led to widespread economic and social shutdown. All right, so I'm going to pass it on to Dr. Khan. As I said, he's an infectious disease physician scientist. He'll be telling us about the virus, uh, testing, treatment, and prevention options. Uh, over to you, Dr. Khan. All right. Um, thank you, uh, Dr. Tan. Okay, so, you know, Dr. Tan gave a great overview of COVID-19, the pandemic, and what it means for uh, the community. And I'll talk a little bit specifically about treatment and testing. So just as a background, you know, COVID-19 is the disease. It's caused by the SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus. And SARS-CoV-2, it's closely related to bat coronaviruses. It's also very closely related to prior epidemic coronaviruses, SARS, um, in 2003 was, was an outbreak, and MERS, there have been outbreaks um, in more recent years. That's Middle East Respiratory Syndrome. It's also closely related to human coronaviruses that can cause the common cold. There's four main uh, coronaviruses that cause the common cold. And, you know, the um, 
virus binds to a particular receptor on the lining of the cells of your lung. And the reason that the virus was able to jump from bats to humans is because there was a mutation in the bat coronavirus that allowed um, this protein on the coronavirus surface to bind to a receptor on the surface of your lung uh, epithelial cells. And so the mortality of COVID-19, it's higher than, than the seasonal flu. Um, Dr. Tan brought up the you know, 1918 influenza pandemic. So it's more akin to a pandemic influenza where we don't have pre-existing immunity in the population. Uh, higher in elderly individuals and with medical comorbidities. And contagiousness is actually similar to common cold. As I mentioned, it's, it's similar to other coronaviruses that cause the common cold. And the contagiousness um, is uh, in that range as well. So this is what the virus looks like. It's got this orange spike on the surface uh, shown here. This uh, is a spike protein. And that's what binds to the epithelial cells lining the human lung. And so that's what allows the virus to enter the human lung. And so up on the top here, we've learned a lot about this virus in a short period of time. These are the different genes of the virus, and we've identified all of them and what they, they do. On the bottom left here, we've identified how exactly the virus binds to the receptor on the lung cells on a uh, molecular level. And then on the right here, we compare the sequence of the virus in humans to sequences of other similar coronaviruses to see where it came from. And this is how we know that it likely jumped from bats to humans, because the sequence of the virus is very similar to sequences that you find of coronaviruses in bats. And, you know, so we, we're very confident that it came from bats to humans um, in China sometime in the late fall. And so, the, you know, Dr. Tan mentioned specific risk factors. Biggest ones are age, um, other comorbidities, cardiovascular and respiratory diseases. Uh, male sex is a risk factor. And, you know, on the bottom right here, there's a lot of inflammatory markers that we can measure by testing a patient's blood that are indicators of severe disease and risk of mortality. And, you know, we at UCI have actually designed a, a computational tool where doctors can put in the patient's, you know, age, uh, medical comorbidities, labs, and it'll tell you the risk that that patient will end up intubated in the ICU. So, you know, we, we've really learned a lot and we're able to do much better risk assessments um, on this virus earlier in the course to try to help us triage patients. On the top right, you know, I just want to make, make the point that testing is important and places that don't test very many people have likely have higher um, mortality rates uh, in, the, in their data because they're only catching the patients that are very severe. So, you know, it's part of, of what, what we see, um, you know, that, that the mortality rate depends largely on how many cases you, you have, the, the measured mortality rate. And the more cases you can, you can measure that are minimally symptomatic, uh, the lower that, that rate gets. However, there is also the other effect that we're not catching all of the deaths, as Dr. Tan mentioned, from the increase in mortality of this year compared to last year. But, you know, overall, taking all of that into account, where does this virus stand in relation to other viruses? So, you know, we measure um, virus properties in two different ways. There's the deadliness or the case fatality rate. 
And then there's the contagiousness, which is the number of people that one person that's infected with the virus can um, infect. And so, you know, for this virus, the mortality rate, as was mentioned, I mean, I put it here and the reason, you know, sort of below 1%, and, you know, the reported case fatality rates are higher. They're like 2% or, or higher. They're, they're more in the range of the Spanish flu. But from early um, antibody testing, we know that there's a large number of people who got infected who we didn't catch in the initial round of testing, either because they were, they were asymptomatic or they had minimal symptoms or they, they just got sick at a time when we just didn't have testing available. And so, you know, the, the true mortality rate is probably somewhere, again, between the Spanish flu, lower than, than some of the pandemic flus, but higher than the seasonal flu. And in terms of the contagiousness, um, you know, there are some infections that are spread airborne that are very contagious, things like measles, um, chicken pox is another one. But, you know, for, uh, for COVID-19, it's similar to the common cold. And all of, of most of these infections in this range are spread by droplets, as Dr. Tan mentioned. It's more contagious than the flu, however. And again, this, the, these numbers are changing as we get more data. You know, with social distancing, the contagiousness actually has gone down somewhat. And as we detect more cases, the more uh, measured mortality rate goes down somewhat. So, you know, Dr. Tan mentioned the clinical course and I'll talk a little bit about what the medical um, you know, underlying factors are as to why you know, certain people get more severe disease later. And it has to do not with the virus itself, but with your body's response to the virus, what we call the inflammatory response. Basically, your body responds to an infection by producing inflammation. And most of the time, that inflammation helps calm down and, and contain the virus and you recover. But in a percentage of people, this inflammatory response can become unregulated and can actually cause damage to the lungs and cause the patient not to be able to breathe and then they end up intubated in the intensive care unit. So we see that you know in early infection, the virus is there, but your body hasn't yet ramped up the inflammatory response. And this is the phase where, you know, you can detect a lot of virus being shed. This is the phase where the patient is, is the most symptomatic. But in, in a percentage of patients who go on to develop severe disease, over time, the body develops an inflammatory response. It contains the virus, um, but this inflammatory response causes the lungs to be inflamed, which causes shortness of breath and we see characteristic patterns on the chest x-ray. And then in a small percentage of patients, this response becomes unregulated and the patient develops um, shock and multi-organ failure and goes on to death. And so I'll talk a little bit about the treatments. Now, there is no proven treatment at this time for coronavirus, uh, COVID-19. The only, the most promising is probably this treatment remdesivir by Gilead. Now, remdesivir, you know, UC Irvine participated as a center in a large multi-center trial of remdesivir. The phase one of the trial recently wrapped up and, you know, while the full data hasn't been released, 
there was some early data released. And in, this medication works by targeting the viral replication. So it inhibits the enzyme that actually replicates the genetic material of the virus. And so the early data shows that there was a trend in the patients who got the remdesivir towards improved mortality. You know, most of these patients who, who got this drug were fairly sick patients in the hospital. And the mortality, you know, without the drug was 11.6%, with the drug was 8%. And it wasn't quite a significant result, but it was trending towards that. There was also a decrease in recovery time from 15 or 16 days to about 11 days uh, in the patients who got the remdesivir. There were other trials. There was a trial in China that didn't show as much benefit. But, you know, based on this early data, we think that this medication will have some effect on the course of COVID-19. I will say, though, that this isn't a, a cure by any means. This isn't a game changer. I mean, this, you know, we are very impressed by the mortality going from 12% to 8% and the recovery being, you know, five days sooner. But, you know, it, it doesn't, so it's a modest benefit. You know, it's not that the patients who get this drug, you know, all of them are cured. There are other medications that have been tested for COVID-19. There's, um, this virus has an enzyme called a protease. And, you know, HIV is another virus that has a, a different type of, of uh, protease. And there's this medication for HIV, uh, lopinavir, ritonavir, that is um, used to inhibit the HIV protease and has been repurposed to try to be used against COVID-19. There was a large clinical trial of this uh, medication. And although it seemed that, that the patients in, who got this medication may have been doing better, it was not statistically significant. So, you know, based on, on the, the, this trial, there wasn't a, a proven benefit of this. Uh, some people say that if you, if you studied more patients, maybe you would see a benefit. But, you know, based on that trial, I think uh, a lot of people were, were not encouraged. Um, I'll talk about hydroxychloroquine. So, you know, this medication well, it was shown to inhibit the virus in the lab. And so because of that, people uh, were interested in trying to use it in patients. And this is a medication that's otherwise used for uh, conditions like lupus uh, in order to modulate the inflammatory response. And so, you know, the initial data that came out on this medication was what we call anecdotal. So basically, they just looked at a few patients, they gave them this medication, they said, okay, some of the patients did, did better, um, but there wasn't a control group of patients who didn't get the medication. Um, and then many of these studies didn't actually look at mortality or you know, a clinical outcome. They, they looked at more laboratory outcomes, like how much virus the patient was, was shedding. And so there really wasn't much evidence, but we didn't have much to, to use. So this medication became widely used. Now, now we have more data. And actually, a large study in the veteran affairs population showed increased mortality with this drug. And you know, this drug has significant effects on the um, heart. It can cause arrhythmias, and particularly when combined with azithromycin. So you know, based on this study showing possible harm from this medication, not just that the patients didn't benefit, but they may actually do worse. Uh, I think most providers, like we at UCI in particular, have gone away from using this, this medication. Uh, and it, it, you know, it just illustrates the importance of 
continuing to be skeptical until we see a proven benefit in our studies. And again, you know, all of these antiviral treatments, I, I would compare them to something like Tamiflu for influenza. Now Tamiflu is a treatment that it works well to prevent influenza and it, it has some benefit to patients who, who you know, are uh, hospitalized with severe disease, but it, it doesn't really, it's not a game changer. You know, it, um, a patient who's in the hospital with severe influenza, we give them Tamiflu, but you know, many of the patients still have, have very severe disease and don't, don't do well. So I, I would say that the antiviral agents for uh, COVID-19 are likely to be similar. I mean, remdesivir may be a little bit better because it actually shows a mortality benefit. But, but again, you know, I wouldn't expect that we're going to have a medication that every patient who gets it is going to be cured. There are other classes of medications that are also used, and these are anti-inflammatory medications. As I mentioned, the inflammatory response, you know, your body's response to the virus, that is a large part of the damage that's done to your body as a result of COVID-19. And so, you know, there are different classes of these anti-inflammatory medications. Some of them block this, uh, what we call a cytokine interleukin-6, and this is uh, a mediator of inflammation in the body. And again, the, the data so far on these has been sim similar to early data on hydroxychloroquine. It's been very, um, you know, looking at a few patients and some of the patients did well, but not having a control group and, and you know, not having a randomized study. Uh, there's also these inhibitors of another um, inflammatory pathway called the JAK-STAT pathway. Um, and clinical trials of, of these um, are ongoing as well. And then there's corticosteroids, which are medications that we use to tamp down the inflammatory response. And these have a very mixed record when it comes to respiratory uh, viral infections. You know, we don't use them in influenza because uh, there was increased mortality in the studies uh, when these were used for influenza. Um, there was this study in China in COVID-19 that said maybe certain very, very severe patients in the ICU uh, with what we call acute respiratory distress syndrome may have a benefit. But again, that was an uncontrolled study. So we're not sure about that. And so currently it's sort of a case-by-case -case basis. Some physicians would use these for some very sick patients in, in very rare circumstances. But in general, um, you know, we're not uh, using these very widely. I'm going to talk a little bit about testing. So there's two types of tests. There's what we call molecular tests, and then there's what we call antibody tests or serology tests. So molecular tests actually detect the genetic material of the virus using this technique called PCR. And this, these are performed on usually nasopharyngeal or throat swabs, or now more and more they're being performed on sputum um, or the phlegm that you cough up. And these are used for if you suspect a patient has active infection. And the limitations of these tests, you know, the sensitivity, which is the proportion of the positive cases that you detect with this test, is only 60 to 80%. And that's for a variety of reasons. You have to really get a good sample. And some of these assays require a certain amount of virus to be present. And so the more rapid assays actually have worse sensitivity. You may have heard news reports of the Abbott test recently. That's a 15-minute sort of desktop test that recent studies have shown the sensitivity is very low. And, you know, that's not surprising. The longer time you allow this PCR technique to go, the more you amplify the genetic material of the virus and the, the lower amount of genetic material you can detect. So, so some of the less rapid assays are probably actually more sensitive. 
Um, also, the specimen matters. So actually, the specimens from the lungs, like sputum, are actually have higher sensitivity than the, the nose, which is higher sensitivity than the throat. Um, if suspicion is high, because of this low sensitivity, you need multiple negative tests. And actually, now the recent recommendation is if, if your initial test is negative, the second test should be done on sputum. Serology tests, you know, these tests detect antibodies produced by the patient in response to infection. So they're not detecting the infection itself, they're detecting antibodies. And the antibodies, you generally don't have a very good sense of when the patient was infected. Now, there's different types of antibodies. Some can diagnose more recent infection that we call those IgM antibodies. Some uh, can diagnose more, more past infection, IgG antibodies. Um, but even for the IgM, you know, they stay elevated for a long period for, you know, potentially weeks to months. So we, it's hard to pinpoint exactly when a patient got infected based on these antibody tests. Um, so the, anti the limitation of these tests, they're not detected until the second week of illness after symptoms. So usually by that point, the patients that were going to have severe disease have already progressed to severe disease. So it's not really as useful in the acute setting to diagnose a patient you think has acute infection. Uh, currently available tests, you know, the FDA essentially has allowed a lot of these tests to come to market with very minimal validation data and minimal regulatory review. And oftentimes when they're independently validated, um, we find worse performance than what's reported by the manufacturer. And they're highly variable. A lot of these are out there. And, you know, uh, uh, I would encourage the, the public that, you know, a lot of, of pop-up clinics now are offering this antibody testing for $100. And it's, it's very unclear, some of the, these tests, what the true um, accuracy is and whether they're useful. Uh, so, you know, one of the reasons is that I mentioned other coronaviruses can cause infections in humans, can cause a common cold. And sometimes your antibodies to those coronaviruses can cross-react with COVID-19 tests. So, so essentially, some patients who may have just got a common cold, you may be detecting them as positive for COVID-19 antibodies. Uh, you know, different tests try to get around this by using multiple different proteins from the virus to try to um, get a more accurate reading of, of COVID-19 versus other coronaviruses. Um, but, you know, that, there are some false positives. And if you have a population where there's not that many people who have the virus, even a 1% false positive rate can be significant. And then correlation of antibodies with immunity is currently unknown. And I'll talk about this in a little bit more detail in the next couple of slides. So immunity to human coronaviruses, you know, we know a little bit from studying other coronaviruses, but we don't really know if all of those lessons apply to this particular virus. So from studying other coronaviruses, you know, we know that in general, if you have higher antibody titers to other um, coronaviruses, you probably have a lower risk of infection, um, but you know, that is very variable person to person. And there's no guarantee that if you have antibodies, you can't get infected. You know, the patients who do get infected have some level of antibody as well for these other coronaviruses. Um, Usually, if your antibodies, if your previous infection was to a very genetically similar strain than the one that's circulating, you're less likely to get reinfected. Um, and also, you know, the, these antibodies for SARS, SARS-1, can persist um, an average of around two to three years. 
And, but however, when people are studied over time, there is some patients who get reinfected over a short period of time. Usually these studies find anywhere from four to 25% reinfection rates at anywhere from, you know, two to four months after the initial infection. And we think that these patients had an ineffective immune response to the initial virus. And, you know, most of, of the, many of the patients who get reinfected actually have higher viral loads, although this is a very controversial um, aspect in the field. It hasn't been very well studied. I'll talk a little, you know, you may have heard a lot about herd immunity. So the possibility of herd immunity for COVID-19 is unclear because I would compare this to something like the flu where, you know, even if you had the flu a previous year, the virus is able to mutate and so you can still get the flu the next year. And even if, if you get the vaccine, you know, it, it's definitely helpful, but it's not 100%. You know, some people who get the vaccine still can get infected, although the people who get the vaccine get le less severe flu. So that's what a situation I would call partial herd immunity with flu. Um, you know, for, for COVID-19, it's likely going to be a similar situation. It's likely not going to be like measles, where once you get the vaccine or infection, you're protected, you know, for life. Um, how much percentage of population you need to develop herd immunity depends on how contagious the virus is. And I mentioned this R not the number of people one person can, can infect. And so based on that, for this virus, probably you need 50, 60% of the population to be infected to get some level of herd immunity. And as Dr. Tan mentioned, the recent estimates are much lower than that. Even I think New York State was 13%. New York City at 21% was the highest. But again, those antibody tests can, can have some... Uh, variable performance. And, you know, all of these studies look for antibodies to try to see how, what percentage of the population is infected. They're limited by the fact that many of these tests, we don't know their true performance. Uh, it's important how you pick the patients. You know, if you, you need to pick them in a way that's random, where you're not biasing towards people who are more likely to have been infected in the past. You know, if you just put out a general call, the people who show up to try to get tested are probably people who really think they've been infected in the past, maybe because they had symptoms in the past. Um, and also, you know, these tests, these studies are done a small sample size so far. So, you know, where we are, current epidemiological models show slow persistent spread of the virus with increasing case numbers in many parts of the country. Some high, high prevalence places that were hard hit, like New York City, have decreasing case counts. And based on the trajectory right now, we're unlikely to reach herd immunity in the next few months in most parts of the country, other than maybe New York City, in the absence of either a significant spike in cases or a vaccine being developed, which is um, we can talk about later. So, you know, um, I guess uh, I'll throw it back to Dr. Tan to talk a little bit about, you know, for the individual people in the community, you know, where are you at risk of infection and what can you do to protect yourself and protect others? Thank you, Dr. Khan, and thank you for the interesting discussion of the virus and, and testing and treatment and vaccine options. Um, I want to talk a little bit about what is the risk to somebody in the community, not someone who's working in the hospital, where are they likely to be most exposed to the virus? So the thing to remember is the main site of transmission is within a household. So somebody's infected and then they come home and within the confines of their household, they're not doing social distancing, not wearing masks. This is where we see most transmission. This is where kids uh, appear to be infected. Now, your risk of transmission depends on the type and duration of the exposure. So as we mentioned, the greatest risk is face-to-face -face contact with an infected individual within a six-foot space 
but also for an extended period of time. Um, risk seems to be high in enclosed spaces. Um, in general, the more exposures you have with the more people, then the greater your risk. So what I would say is incidental contact, you're passing somebody in the street, or you handle an object that someone has previously touched, your risk is low. But if you have a lot of these contacts, if you're the checkout uh, clerk at a store and many people are coming through, so even each contact is relatively short, you have great exposure because you're exposed to more people. Now, um, a, a question that people have is about face masks. We are all wearing face masks now. So what is the purpose of a face mask? The important thing to remember is the main reason to wear face, face masks is to protect other people. Uh, we call this source control. So if you were to cough or sneeze, you want to prevent those respiratory droplets you're producing from contaminating the area around you and infecting other people. And this especially applies to people who may not know they're infected. So they don't know that there's symptoms yet. Um, and so because of the peculiar way that COVID-19 seems to be spread uh, prior to symptoms, the face mask is there to try and reduce the chance that you would uh, 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 infect other people. Now, the masks wearer themselves can have some protection, but uh, realize that the face masks that we wear in the community don't provide the same level of protection that an N95 mask uh, provides. Um, another thing is the face mask may provide a full sense of security. So what you see, uh, and I've noticed this for myself in grocery stores, once people wear face masks, they think they're immune, they think they're protected, and they don't mind getting close to, to other people. But this, that's a false sense of security. The other thing is that a lot depends on whether you touch your face or your hands and people find the face mask uncomfortable, they're always adjusting it, they're using their hands to touch their, their eyes, sometimes they don't wear the face mask properly, so the face mask is not going to give you complete protection. So some people might say, well, if the best face mask protection is an N95 mask, shouldn't I be wearing that? And here what we would say is that there are reasons we don't uh, uh, promote use of N95 in the community. Um, we know that in the, uh, in, for the COVID-19 patient, um, they don't appear to produce airborne particles except in the hospital with certain clinical interventions that the healthcare worker is doing to them, and those are called aerosol generating procedures. So that healthcare worker has to wear an N95 mask or some other protection. But we don't want people in the general community doing this because there's a limited supply of N95 masks. And one of the guiding principles should be that we cannot use up our PPE, our protective personal equipment, personal protective equipment now because we don't know how many cases we're going to deal with uh, in the future, including a possible second wave. Another question is, should I wear gloves? In general, we don't have to wear gloves for just incidental contact. If you're going to the store, you don't have to wear gloves. But if someone has a lot of contact with contaminated objects, then it may be useful. But the important thing to remember is the gloves don't by themselves protect you. So if you have contaminated respiratory secretions on your gloves and you touch your face, you can still transmit it. And you'll see uh, workers in stores who are wearing gloves, but again, are, are, are touching their face. And so they can spread it even though they're wearing gloves. Hand sanitizers can be useful for decontaminating the hands, uh, but they have to contain alcohol. And the thing I would uh, remind everybody is that the contaminated objects are not the main way that COVID-19 is spread. So I'd like to then uh, pass on my, uh, some questions to Dr. Khan. Uh, what are your thoughts about the timeline for when we can have effective treatment and vaccine? And what are your thoughts about uh, when and how we can open up the society and economy? Go ahead, Dr. Khan. So, so th there are a lot of vaccines under investigation. There's about 
six that have entered clinical trials and 70 other vaccine candidates that are in preclinical development uh, based on a recent count by the World Health Organization. And I've, I've highlighted the six that have entered clinical trials below, but as you can see, they're all either in phase one or phase two. Now, the way we uh, categorize clinical trials, phase one is essentially just for safety, for, for trying to you know, figure out, um, make sure that, that this vaccine doesn't have any harmful effects. Phase two is generally to find the appropriate dose. And that's where you, know, you may give the vaccine and then test for antibodies later to make sure the vaccine is producing an effective, uh, it, it's producing antibodies. And then really when we really tested the vaccine works is when we, what we call phase three, which is where we give the vaccine to, to people and then you know, have a control group and then see if the people who got the vaccine um, had a lower risk of contracting the infection, in this case, COVID-19. Um, the issue and the reason that, that it takes a long time for a vaccine to come to market is, you know, to do, to show that the vaccine is beneficial, you need to recruit a large number of patients because, you know, you, and you need a population that has a high risk of, of getting the disease. And so one of the challenges is that, you know, if you're in a situation like many parts of the country where you have spread of the virus, but you're not in a crisis situation where, like New York, where, um, you know, uh, the virus is spreading uncontrollably, it's hard to recruit enough patients to show a, a real um, sign a difference between the patients who got the vaccine and patients who didn't. You need a very large number of patients, and that takes time to recruit a large number of patients. And so usually phase three would take the longest time. And one way to make that shorter is to do what's called challenge studies. And challenge studies are, are where you give people the vaccine and you actually challenge them with the virus. You, you give them the coronavirus or you give them a, a weekend uh, derivative of it. Um, those bring up some ethical concerns, but they're currently um, being discussed. And so, you know, that's a reason why it takes a long time you know, generally it takes a minimum of, of a few years. Um, I think in this case, we can likely get a vaccine out by, you know, next spring, summer. But, you know, that's still, I, I think it's more likely that by then, many, most of the population will have already been infected. So, you know, I, I think that uh, there, there are uh, different types of vaccines. So the ones that can get out the fastest are what we call DNA or RNA vaccines. The problem is, none of those vaccines have, have been um, used and uh, approved previously for other diseases. So it's a relatively unproven technology. And so, you know, even though those are very fast to, to get um, out there, we don't really know if that approach will work. Inactivated vaccines, where you actually inactivate the virus, that's a more traditional approach, but that takes a little longer. And then, you know, one very promising approach is where you take genes from the the virus, um, SARS-CoV-2, and you put them into a, a different virus, in this case, uh, what we call an, an adenovirus. Um, and essentially, the, the weakened virus presents the, the genes to your body, your body develops antibodies, but the, weak, the other virus is not able to infect you in the same way that uh, COVID-19 is. Um, so, you know, I, I think that there's some promising candidates on the market, but again, I, I don't think that this is something that's going to be available to the public by the fall. 
Uh, you mentioned it would be available by spring or summer. That would be spring or summer of next year. Yeah, by, 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 by next year, yes. I, I think that's a, an op, even that's optimistic, but, but I, I, I think that, that that's possible. Right. Um, and then, you know, in terms of our California stage reopening, you know, it's important. This isn't an either or decision. It's important to go in phases. And what you want to make sure is that if you get a spike of infection, you're able to control it. So currently we're in shelter in place. Um, if we see decreased uh, virus transmission over a 14 day period, we can start to open low risk workplaces where social distancing can be implemented like offices, schools, childcare. Um, we also, in addition to decreasing case counts, need to have expanded testing capacity so that if we get an outbreak, we can test a large number of people. And we need to make sure that our hospitals have available resources so they don't get overwhelmed if we do develop an outbreak. And again, these workplaces need to be able to implement social distancing. Um, stage three, which is likely months away, would be higher risk places like gyms, salons, churches, where people are interacting with each other more closely. And for that, we really need to have expand, what we call expanded contract tracing capacity. That means, you know, if you have something like a large church service where one person is infected, you know, you may have a large number of people that you need to track down and test. And so we have to, you have to have the capacity to do that. And stage four, which we're probably a year away from, is large gatherings. These are like concerts and, and sporting events. And just the risk of putting you know, 10,000 people in one place, uh, I don't think we would do that until we either get to herd immunity or we get a vaccine that works. And so you know, that's um, what I have. And Dr. Khan, thank you very much. Could you just uh, tell the audience what we mean by contact tracing and how is that done? Yeah, so, so contact tracing is where if you identify a case, you're able to track down all the people that that person interacted with while they were infectious. And you're able to find th those people, figure out which of those people are positive, and then for, for all those people that are positive, track down their, all of their contacts while they were infectious and essentially follow that, that chain to the end. And, you know, South Korea is actually doing a good job of this. Uh, now, what they, they are doing may bring up some privacy concerns in this country because they're using, you know, cell phones to, to track individuals and, and they're essentially um, publishing, you know, data on like a, a person who was at this, this location with the coronavirus you know, but, but, but it's been very effective from a public health perspective. My understanding is that although we're trying to use high-tech ways such as uh, cell phones and all that, um, there are some early studies showing that those are not quite as effective as we hoped. And a lot of the contact tracing would have to be done by individual humans, boots on the ground, have to go out and talk to people. So I think part of our plan for reopening should be to have enough contact tracers. We don't have enough, so we probably have to expand that pool, train them, and be ready for them to do their work to, uh, as part of the public health uh, measures to uh, contain any, any uh, additional spread. Yes, yeah, that, that definitely. I mean, you know, technology is helpful, but you need, even with technology, you need somebody to actually look at all of, of those, you know, that data and figure out, you know, contact those, those people and, and actually, you know, you, you do the legwork. And so that's really what's missing is the human component. We have a lot of technology, but we, we need more, more humans. I, I think the other thing to say about reopening is that it may not be a, a simple and 
uh, linear thing. So I think as we look around the world, you may see places that open up and then have an increase in cases and a new outbreak and may have to, to uh, close down their society and economy again. So maybe uh, stopping and starting. And in fact, that was the experience in the influenza 1918 pandemic. Uh, some cities opened up early, had a lot of cases, and had to clamp down again. So it may be uh, fits and starts. Yeah, so so the, the idea is if you go to stage two and you get increasing cases, you have to go back to stage one. And that that's gonna be that's gonna likely happen. And so yeah. I you know I think that yes, it's not linear. Yeah. And I think we also see that some places are opening up when their cases have gone down. But here in California, our cases haven't gone away. And so there are also concerns about opening up too soon. Yes. It definitely. In fact, the places that that are close that that should be talking about opening up are probably places like New York City, where you know they're pro- you know most of the population or significant portion of the population have been infected. Like places where we haven't even hit our our, our spike yet, or you know w- most of our population is at risk. So really, we're at higher risk of of having a surge. All right. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Khan, um, and uh, I'm uh, Dr. Ming Tan, and the two of us have really enjoyed talking to you about COVID-19. This has been an all-consuming thing for everybody, um, but as you can see, we're learning more and more. There's some hope for the future, but uh, we're not at the end yet. There's still um, much more to learn about this. Uh, Everybody, please stay safe and uh, keep your family safe too. Thank you. Thank you. The UCI Podcast is a production of the Office of Strategic Communications and Public Affairs. For all things COVID-19, go to oc-covid19.org. Thanks for listening.